Well, good morning, everyone. What a wonderful time of worship. Thanks to our praise team. And um, I'm going to set this over here and let them do their thing. Um, I've already started, so it happens sometimes. Um, today's just one of those days. I, you know, I was as we were approaching this, this couple of verses, I, I did not want to preach this sermon uh, today, I'll just tell you, because of the topic matter of suffering. Um, I wanted to avoid it. I was just could have moved right along, and the Holy Spirit of God over the last couple of weeks just kept prodding my heart and instructing me that we teach the full counsel of God's Word. And so um, my ask to you is that you don't hear the messenger today, um, because who am I to speak to anyone about their suffering? I don't know what you've been through. I may observe it from a distance, but I don't know what it feels like. I don't know what it felt like. And so just hear the truth of God's Word today um, and receive it. Um, our text comes from Romans chapter 3, we'll be reading, or 5 verses, we'll be reading verses 3 through 5. If you would, let's stand together and read from God's Word. Paul's going to share here with us the additional privileges that come along with being justified. He said in verses 1 and 2 that because we're justified, we have peace with God, we have access with the God of the universe, and we have hope. And then today, verse 3, he says, hey, there's another privilege that comes along, and so that's what we're going to look at today. Let's look at, um, we're going to read verses beginning at verse 3. Here we go. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You may be seated. Thanks, y'all, so much. All right, let's start at verse 3. It says, not only that we have peace with God, not only that we have access with God, not only that we have hope of future glorification, that's what we talked about last week, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, as I was preparing this week, I ran across two misinterpretations of what Paul's talking about there. The first of those misinterpretations is some said, well, Paul's a masochist. Paul is actually looking forward to, he's glorying in, he's rejoicing in, he's finding, he's, in, he's enjoying his suffering, and that's not what Paul intends here at all. Um, that's completely ridiculous. Paul finds no more enjoyment in suffering than Tom Brady does in losing. That was the best comparison I could come up with. I mean, that's completely ridiculous. Paul just finds no enjoyment in suffering at all. Rather, what Paul found was that he didn't lose his joy in the midst of going through suffering. And that's what he's intending to communicate here. One other misinterpretation of this passage is what we refer to in theological circles as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel basically teaches that God never intends for you to ever experience hardship or, or setbacks of any kind, that God's intent for you is to never experience pain or heartache or tragedy or failure. In other words, as a believer, as a child of God, as a Holy Spirit-filled Christ-follower, Bible-believing Christian, that God's will for you is that you would never experience suffering. And friends, that is not what the Word of God teaches. But prosperity gospel pe people teach that God will, His will is that you be exempt from the results of the curse. And according to these folks, sickness and trouble and testing and difficulty are not things to rejoice about. They are not something to accept as part of the plan of God for your life. Rather, these things should be despised, they should be rejected, and they should be rebu rebuked in the name of Jesus. And the thought here is that if you believe God enough, 
that God will exempt you from those things. And so that's what prosperity gospel people teach. Now, are they right in what they're teaching? Well, let's again take a look at what the Bible says. Paul says right here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, he says, not only do we have peace and access and hope, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that does not sound like somebody who was rebuking anything. Right? That sounds like Paul, a Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing, Holy Spirit-filled Christian, is saying, I'm going to suffer. Suffering is going to happen. And he says, in the midst of that, though, I don't have to lose my joy. Friends, if suffering was something that we ought to reject and rebuke and throw away in the name of Jesus, and if suffering was something that Jesus had never ordained for us as believers, then how in the world could God instruct us to rejoice in our suffering? The Greek word that is translated there, suffering, is the word thalipsis, and it occurs, it's translated many ways throughout all the different translations. It's translated as affliction, as trouble, as distress, difficulty, hardship, illness, persecution, tribulations, Depending on what translation you're reading, it, it'll, it'll translate solipsis as any of those. But again, the Holy Spirit's uh, instruction to us here is not to rebuke those things away, but rather to find joy in the midst of it. John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have thalipsis. You will have tribulation, you'll have struggle, you'll have suffering. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and thalipsis you, persecute you. When you're, dipping, you're experiencing struggle, he said, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, on my account. Later in the book of Romans, Paul writes, Romans 8 and verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. Again, here's Paul saying, look, I'm experiencing suffering right now. That's not a guy who's saying I'm rebuking this stuff, in the way in the, this stuff away in the name of Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it there. He's speaking there about the curse. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And then he continues, verse, four, verse 23, and not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. He's saying Christians ourselves are subject to the curse, not exempt from it. And this is our experience of life, isn't it? He's saying that, yes, even Christians will experience the curse. Even Christians will experience heartache and persecution and calamity. We are not exempt from such things. That's the clear meaning of the text, right? Consistently from the mouth of Jesus himself. So friends, I propose to you that any notion that trouble and heartache and toil should be rejected and rebuked, that may be great for book sales, but that is not consistent with the teaching of the word of God. Amen? All right, let's move on. Still in verse 3. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. Not only peace and access and hope, but we also rejoice in our suffering that is in the midst of it, not because of our suffering, but we rejoice in the midst of our suffering, uh, not because of it, that's masochism, not rejecting it, that's prosperity gospel. But as we are going through it, we are not robbed of joy. We can rejoice through suffering, and that's because we know some, something, Paul says. Knowing, he says, that suffering produces certain things. Suffering produces certain things. So it's not meaningless. Suffering's not without purpose. God accomplishes things through our suffering. Now, where I want to spend the rest of my time is looking at those certain things, looking at those fruits that come out of suffering. So it kind of forms a little bit of an outline for us here. I know that was a long introduction. But uh, anyhow, we're, that's, that's kind of my outline, is to look at these three fruits that come out of suffering. And he says the first of those in verse 3, he says that suffering produces endurance. Verse 4, he says endurance produces character. And then finally, in character produces hope. And so those are our three things that I'll use as an outline moving forward. So with the, um, let's look at the first of those fruits of suffering. Number one is endurance. The Greek word that is translated as endurance 
is the word whom. I was trying to think of the other one. Uh, humamane, and it literally means to hold a steady course, that is to be unswerving. Basically, this is someone who does not give up, someone who does not peel off, someone who does not fall away, someone who does not drop out. They endure, right? They hang in there. I know this reminds me of the training that our military men and women, as I was thinking about this this past week, particularly those that are Marines. I mean, it's drilled into their heads. You never, ever, ever what? Give up. You don't give up. No matter what it is that you're going through, you don't give up. And the way that Marines are trained is that the drill instructors put them through, I mean, some pretty difficult stuff, right? Uh, the drill instructors will deprive them of sleep. Drill instructors will get them cold. They'll get them wet. They'll make them completely miserable and wanting to think, you know what, I, I think I'm ready to throw in the towel here. They bring them right to the edge of physical and mental collapse when their emotions are just completely drained and they're ready to just throw in the towel. And they bring them to the edge of that so they can discover how far they can push themselves. They can discover what they're really made of. They can put them in that same situation later on down the line and be based on their training, they can say, hey, you know what? I went through this before. I went through stuff that was even more difficult than this before, and I know that I can keep going and make it through this that I'm experiencing right now. Again, their training teaches them, look, you've been down this road before. This is what it feels like. Push on through it. And so Paul is saying here, suffering in the Christian life produces that same fruit in you. When we go through difficulty, when tragedy strikes, when setbacks happen, these experiences, not only do they drive us to our knees, but they show us that we are capable of what we are capable of, perhaps much more than we ever thought. They put emotional muscle and a spiritual sinew on our souls. No one ever, friends, in the history of the world has, been, has learned endurance through Comfort. Let me say that for us again. No one in the history of the world has ever learned endurance through comfort. I mean, think about the story of Moses, right? Moses, God put him on the backside of the desert for 40 years. I mean, that guy was scratching out a living for 40 years in the desert. And during that time, God was hardening him, teaching him what it, not his heart, but he was hardening his ability to know what he could push through so that later on, God would have a, a ministry for him of 40 years leading the Israelites through the desert. Ask David about this. David lost his throne to his rebellious son. He spent decades living in caves on the run and outlaw. Uh, Job lost everything that he had. How about Samson and Daniel and Jonah from the Bible? These are men who experience supreme suffering and pain. How about people like Peter and Paul and the martyrs of the early church? These are all people, again, who experienced great difficulty and overcame that. How about people like Wesley and Whitfield and missionaries like Adoniram Judson? How about great saints of the faith like Helen Keller and Florence Nightingale and Harriet Tubman? Men and women, great saints of the faith who pushed through tremendous odds, who had tremendous obstacles out in front of them and yet overcame those and they did not give up. Through their suffering, through their trials of life, endurance was built onto their bones. They learned what they were made of. This is the first fruit of suffering. Number two, what's the second fruit? Paul says, verse 4, and endurance produces or leads to character. Now, the word character is perhaps not the best translation there from the Greek. Uh, when we think of the word character, oftentimes we think of somebody who is morally upright. And that's not what is intended to be um, communicated here. The Greek word is the word dokume, and it literally refers to someone who has been through an ordeal, someone who has been through the refining fire, somebody who has been tested. 
Um, and, and they have emerged, perhaps scarred, but still standing on the other side of it all. This is somebody who has been to the big game. They've been to the Super Bowl, and they made it through it, and now they come back to that again, and they're able to see it with eyes wide open. They're able to say, hey, you know what? I've been there before. I know some of the emotions that I would experience in that. I know some of the things that I'm up against, and so I can push on through. These are the kind of people that you want on your team. Paul, in talking about Pastor Timothy, remember Paul's at the end of his life when he writes the letter to the Philippians, and he knows that he's not long for this world, and so he sends Timothy to the church in Philippi to say, hey, look, Timothy's going to be overseeing some of the ministry that I'm leaving behind. And he says of Timothy, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, but you know Timothy's dakume, that is, you know his proven worth, you know his character, he's proven and what the Holy Spirit of God is saying is that when you and I go through suffering and when we endure it, the result is someone whom others can look to, a person who in the eyes of the community has been tested and proven their worth. People that the rest of us can look to in our own hard times and can say, she went through it, he went through it, perhaps I can make it through it as well. These are the people who, when we're going through difficulty, we know that they've been through this before. We say, can you please hold my hand and walk through these fires with me? I know that you've walked through these before, and you can walk with, it with me, and perhaps I can make it through on the other side. Paul says the Holy Spirit of God produces such people through suffering. And because of that, I can rejoice knowing that that is what God is doing with me. He's preparing me to be a steady, proven resource in the eyes of my community. Final fruit, number three. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You know, some of the most hopeful people that I have ever met are people that have endured some of life's greatest tragedies. I mean, what more do they have but hope? The things that perhaps the rest of us would try to bring around ourselves to insulate us from trouble and insulate us from difficulty, that stuff's all been stripped away because of what they've gone through. And they've had to learn that there are some sure foundations in life upon which we are to build our lives. And they go forward living their lives on those sure foundations. Again, some of the most hopeful people I've ever met are people who have been through some of life's greatest tragedies. Friends, if you are putting, and then Paul goes on to say in verse 5, he says that kind of hope, hope in Jesus Christ, hope in Jesus Christ and, and uh, eternity with him, friends, that kind of hope does not in the NIV disappoint us. He says here in the ESV, does not put us to shame, doesn't let you down. Friends, if you're putting your hope in anything other than God, you will be disappointed. You know, we all do this. I have a tendency when things are going smooth, right, and everything in life is just kind of sailing along. I have a tendency to just kind of coast along in my own energy, relying on my own self. But I'll tell you, when suffering comes, when difficulty pops up its head, it just kind of snaps me right back and reminds me again of my deep need for something lasting, for something sure, my deep need for Jesus. Paul was not living for this world. He said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. There's a guy who had put his hope in a sure foundation and was living his life on that solid rock. 
He goes on to say, though, in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, God's still got some agenda for me to accomplish here in this world. All right, let's sum up. Since we have been justified, declared not guilty in God's sight, and saved by grace, we have peace with God, we have access to God, and we have hope in a future glorification. That was last week. And then Paul adds today, we also have joy in our sufferings because we know some things. And what is it that we know? First of all, we know that suffering produces the fruit of endurance, a kind of tenacity and resolve to not give up when life goes south. And secondly, suffering produces character or a proven worth in the eyes of others that will, turn, will in turn give them hope as well. And finally, number three, the third fruit of suffering is that suffering produces hope. It strips away all the fake, all the phony, all the surfacey stuff of life that we sometimes tend to build our lives upon and reminds us of our need for a solid foundation for something to build our lives on that is real and that is lasting. All right, well, that's our treatment of this topic for today, and so that means it's time to ask the question that I like to ask. I don't know if y'all like to ask it or not, but I, apparently I do um, every week. So uh, it's the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, let's, let me see if I can answer that. I'd like to read just a couple of short excerpts from Timothy Keller's book. He has a commentary on the book of Romans, and I was using that this past week, and so I just want to share just a few thoughts from Timothy Keller. He's a pastor of a big church in uh, New York, loves the scriptures right in line with how our church understands uh, the scriptures, and so I just want to share just a few thoughts with you from him. He says, self-justifiers, these are people who are trying to make themselves worthy. And so when it comes to God, these are people who are trying to do to get God to love them. God, if I write a check to the church, if I come serve at the church, if I'm a good husband, if I'm a good wife, if I'm a good daughter, um, then you'll reward me for that. So that's self-justifiers, right? It's what I do, what I bring, that then causes God to bless me back. Self-justifiers are always insecure, he says, at a deep level because they know they aren't living up to their own standards, but they cannot admit it. So when suffering hits, they immediately feel they are being punished for their sins. In other words, I'm, God loves me on the basis of what I do for him. But then when tragedy comes into my life, when suffering comes into my life, when difficulty and setbacks come into my life, it's like, God, what am I, what, what am I doing wrong here? Right? God, looking around, God, do you not love me anymore? So their love, God's love for them in their mind is conditional. It's based on what they're doing and their performance. He says, since their belief that God loves them was inadequately based, suffering shatters them. Suffering drives them away from God rather than toward Him. Think about that. Again, their, ba their whole relationship with God is on, based on what they do, what I can bring to God, my performance. And that if, if setbacks come into my life, then apparently I'm not performing very well. And so God must be against me. And so rather than running to God, when we really need to be running to God, they run away from God. And then he finally says, verse, uh, the last thing, it's not a verse, last thing he says, it is when we suffer that we discover what we are really trusting and hoping in, ourselves or God. Keller then goes on to ask a question a little bit later in the book. And it's a self-reflective question. And I just want you to consider this question, do a little self-reflection, a little self-evaluation on the basis of this question. He says, did the suffering that you experienced 
make you doubt God's love. You say, well, I mean, my washing machine went out, my transmission went out all in the same week. Yeah, kind of wondering, right? <laughs> you know, I'm looking up going, God, what's, what's happening here? What's wrong? What, what have I done? Are you trying to correct me? And God does correct us sometimes through difficulty and struggle. Sometimes we need that. Um, but that's not evidence that God doesn't love us. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12, for the Lord reproves him and corrects him whom he loves as a father in the son in whom he delights. So when God corrects us, that's just proof that God does love us, not that he's trying to push us away. But then, uh, you know, if it's not correction that God's dealing with, if it's just, we live in a fallen world, bad things happen, right? We're not exempt from the curse. And so a washing machine goes out. Transmission goes out. These things happen, or maybe worse. He says, that's a perfectly natural response to ask God, God, am I doing something wrong here? He says, that's a perfectly natural response. He says, but did you eventually shake it off? And then he says, last thing here, the speed with which you do that is an indication of how well you understand justification. You see what he's saying? If your view, your suffering, if you view your suffering as God's wrath being poured out on you, and friends, you do not understand how salvation works. You know, you don't have to love your suffering. You don't even have to like it. But, if, but that it's happening says nothing about God's, God loving you less. Let me say this very clearly. If you are a Christian, God has sent all your punishment onto Christ. All of his wrath for you, fell into the heart of Jesus on the cross and was swallowed up and absorbed there. It disappeared forever. God has no anger for you any longer. Rather, what the Bible teaches is that God uses suffering to produce something good in us. Our suffering, unlike the suffering of the world, is not meaningless. It is not without purpose. It will yield fruit in our lives. It will teach us to endure. It will reveal us as proven. And it will strip back all the fluff that we've been building our life upon. For the Christian, suffering will not break you. Suffering will make you. In 1873, Chicago had a devastating fire destroy most of the city. A fellow by the name of Horatio G. Spafford sent his wife and four daughters uh, to back to England while Chicago was being rebuilt. Put them on a train, sent them to New York. From New York, they would pick up a boat and head across the Atlantic. Going across the Atlantic, their ship collided with another ship in the middle of the night, and as Horatio G. Spafford's wife clung to a piece of wreckage in the middle of the ocean, she watched as all four of her daughters were swept away. When she got to Wales, she sent a telegram back to Mr. Spafford, and she wrote only two words, saved alone. Spafford immediately went to New York, chartered a ship, taking the same route that his family had taken, and he asked that when they got to the spot where his daughters had drowned, where the ship had wrecked, that they let him know. About two o'clock in the morning, knock came at the door. The steward said, Mr. Spafford, we're at your spot. So around two o'clock, 
uh, Spafford jumped up, got dressed, went to the bow of the ship. And as the ship sailed over the watery grave of his four daughters, he took out an envelope that he happened to have in his pocket, and he began to write some words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea billows, roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, when you can look up from the bottom of the barrel, from underneath of the pile, and when Satan comes to you and says, where is your God? Why has he allowed these things to happen to you? And you can respond like Spafford responds, it is well, it is well with my soul. And friends, you have a right view of God's love. Praise God, friends, that our pain is not meaningless, that our suffering is not without purpose. Praise God that the Holy Spirit will use it to produce some amazing fruits, friends, in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you this morning for what you've taught us today. God, you know there are a lot of us who have struggles. I would dare say all of us, in some way, shape, or form, are working through things. God, some of us still cry about things that happened years ago. Some of us have cried this week. Maybe some of us have cried this morning. Lord, we just help us to have a right view of you. Help us to have a right view of your love. Help us to understand, God, that whatever it is that we're going through, it is not a result of your wrath. That was all poured out on Jesus. Lord, help us to, in these dark moments, to run to you, our Heavenly Father, to stand on the bow of the ship like Spafford and be comforted by your eternal presence. Lord, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood this morning, we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to our hearts in these quiet moments, that you would encourage us, that we would see the good things, Lord, that you are producing in us. So even though, Lord, we're sad, even though, God, we are worried, Lord, we can also have joy in the midst of it all. And it's only because of you. It's only because of you. Lord, we give you this space. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.